So we're beginning today Galatians chapter 3. And I am very excited to be beginning chapter 3 because these next two and a half-ish chapters are the reason I wanted to preach through this book. I can tell you that when I first joined the teaching team, going back, I don't know, some four years ago, I came in hot and I was like, you know what we should do? We should preach through Galatians. And they were like, all right, new guy, slow your roll. The question is why? Why do I love this book so much? Why do I want you to love this book so much? Well, this book really helps to unify the whole of God's word. It helps us to properly understand the whole story of the Bible beginning with Genesis. It helps us to see God's unfolding plan of redemption, one unified history of God's grace throughout the whole Bible. And that's really Paul's argument in this letter. Every spiritual blessing of God, including salvation, has always only been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the Galatians, by adding circumcision as a requirement for salvation, by adding works to faith, you see, they're not just changing a religion that had begun about two decades earlier with Christ at his first advent. They aren't just changing how God's people related to God and received his grace since the coming of Christ. They aren't just changing how salvation had been since the coming of Christ. No, they are trying to change the way that God's true people have always related to him. They're changing the way, the only way that salvation has ever worked. And that's why this letter is so amazing. It helps us to see that there has only ever been one way to salvation. There's only ever been one plan of God. There has only ever been one people of God. Which helps us to see what the Bible points us from start to finish. From Genesis 1-1 through the end of the book of Revelation, the Bible points us to Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith alone in him alone. And I really want us to see Jesus Christ as we go through our Bibles, whether we're reading the Gospel of John or the book of Genesis, whether we're reading the letter to the Romans or we're going through 1 Samuel, I want us to see how Christ is there. And that's what Paul's really going to help us start to do in our passage today. So let's at the context before we go on, lest we forget what we've seen the last few weeks. Paul just argued that works of the law cannot save. Remember, he laid out that argument that justification is from faith alone and not by works of the law. And then he explained, we saw last week, if works, if obeying the law, if that was sufficient for salvation, then Christ wouldn't have had to die. Because then there would be a way to justification apart from faith in Christ. But Paul has destroyed that argument. He spent two chapters destroying any notion that we can be saved by anything other than faith in Christ. And we see here, starting today, he apparently feels as if he shouldn't have to make this argument in the first place. The Galatians should already know that works can't save them. Look what he says, Galatians 3.1. He says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul is apparently done pulling punches here. <laughs> he calls them fools. Why does he call them fools? He asked them, who has bewitched you? That word bewitched there, it means to be given the evil eye. It's referring to an old superstition that someone could cast a spell on you. Did you ever get the evil eye from someone? It's a superstition that someone could cast a spell on you through their eyes. And Paul is saying that, hey, that must be what happened here, right? And just so you know, according to Greek superstition, you could ward off the spell by spitting three times while the person was looking at you. I'm not kidding. That's really the point Paul is making. We laugh, but this is what Paul's saying. He goes, hey, foolish Galatians, it's a little ridiculous to believe these things. Ridiculous to believe that you can cast a spell on someone by looking at them. Ridiculous to believe that after being saved by grace through faith, that you now need to add works to continue your salvation. 
She's using this language about superstition, which in its broadest sense is any belief in the supernatural that's simply not true. Paul's basically saying, hey, if you believe, you have to do works now. After having been saved by grace, you're following silly superstitions. And we know that many have mixed this kind of superstition with Christianity from the very beginning. Even today, there are certain sects of Christianity that are so immersed in superstition that it's just part of their regular religion now. Even our English word religion comes from the Latin, and it means to do something out of obligation, to be, have an obligation placed on you. It's really a cultic word. That's why so many born-again Christians don't even like the word religion. They, they stay away from it because the very notion points us back to us, back to our works, many of which are done out of Christian circles really by nothing more than just superstition. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that our religion is a pure religion. As we saw a few weeks ago, we can summarize the whole of the Christian faith, the whole of our religion, as grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. And it's this purity, this simplicity of faith and worship that Paul is trying to point the Galatians back to. And Paul's possibly even playing with words here a little bit. Saying, oh foolish Galatians, who has given you the evil eye when it was before your own eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? He's saying you've traded what was before your own eyes, what you've already known for superstitions. Trading what you have seen for the superstition of others. Trading your pure face, faith for a false gospel. Trading Jesus plus nothing for Jesus plus works. In essence, trading the truth for lies. That's why Paul says, before your very eyes, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. And that was publicly portrayed here. It's one word in the Greek and doesn't really have a great English counterpart for the way it's used here. It's a compound word from the word for before and the word for right. It means literally written beforehand. It's a word that would originally be used to refer back to something written previously in the same work. Paul uses it that way. In his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, we see he says to the Ephesians, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. That as I have written is the same word, referring back to something Paul had already written. Paul also used it to refer back to other scriptures, like in Romans 15, where he says, For whatever was written in former days, that's that word, was written for our instruction but through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. But the word's also used in the Bible to refer back to the decree of God, like in Jude 4. Where Jude says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That word designated is this word. He literally says these people were written beforehand for condemnation. But why does Jude use that word here? Why does Paul use it that way in our passage here? Well, what happens over time, and this happens with all languages, it always has the way language works. Trust me, I'm a word nerd, don't forget that. Usage is what determines meaning of a word. And so when usage changes, the meaning changes. Just like how, when I was a kid, the word lit was just the past tense of light. Somewhere in the 80s, lit began to mean totally inebriated. Boy, that guy got lit at that party. Now it means something really, really great, like, boy, that party was lit. I don't even know if it's used that way anymore. Kids, somebody... But what happens is, 
The meanings change. So here in Galatians 3, when Paul says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, the word that meant simply written beforehand and then came to mean something that was decreed came to mean a public notice of a decree. A public notice of a decree. Like the powers that be decided something and then put a public notice out for everybody. And Paul's using the word here to refer to the crucifixion of Christ. Think about that. He's saying first that Christ's crucifixion is an indisputable fact because it was done publicly. It was done publicly with the intent that everyone would know. I mean, that was literally part of the crucifixion point. Remember, the sign over the cross of Christ, like with all victims of crucifixion, they would publicly notify what crimes the person committed. And they would execute them publicly in a very horrible fashion to deter others from committing that same crime. It was meant to be a public notice. So Paul's saying, Jesus' death, this is a public event. Everybody knows about it. And we see, by the time this letter was written, it was still public knowledge that Christ was crucified and that his body was no longer in the grave because we see when Paul was brought before Festus, which is after this book of Galatians was written, Paul preaches the gospel and he says this to King Agrippa in Acts 26. He says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, because or for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. That's what Paul was saying to the Galatians. This was not done in a corner. They, the Galatians, they are, or at least were, aware of the truth of what Christ had accomplished. But there's more. Because when Paul says this again, Galatians 3, verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He is saying that Christ's crucifixion was a public notice of a decision, of a decree that was made beforehand by the powers that be. In this case, the ultimate power that be. Paul is saying that Christ is the culmination of God's eternal decree of salvation. His work, his public ministry, his public crucifixion, his resurrection, they were God's public notice of his way to salvation. And they're undeniable. Undeniable because they weren't done in a corner. So Paul is telling the Galatians, you're a bunch of fools. You are trading the obvious, undeniable truth for superstitious lies. And it's really no different than the world today, is it? You know, anybody who tells you, well, the universe just always has been. Or life just started out of nothing. They're trading obvious truth for lies. How much worse is it when Christians try to add these things into their religion? That's why Paul writes this letter. That's why Paul goes on here. In verse 2, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul, after calling them fools, for trading the truth they have believed for the superstition of works righteousness, he wants to reason with them simply. And he says, did you receive the Spirit? And he's talking about their initial conversion, right? It's the very first step in salvation, the sovereign work of the Spirit in the hearts of men and women that grants us eyes to see the truth, turns us in repentance towards God. He asked them, well, how did that happen, guys? Did that happen by works of the law, like circumcision? Or was it just by faith, pure and simple? And the answer is assumed in the question, of course, right? They were saved by faith and not works. Paul knew it. They knew it. They knew it full well. They knew they were justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And this fact that they were saved by faith is even more obvious than what Paul says next in verse 3. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's basically going back to what we saw last week. 
where we saw you cannot add works to your salvation at any point in your salvation. It is only ever about Jesus. And Paul here is advancing that argument by pointing out the fact that, yeah, you know your initial salvation was by faith and not works. So why are you adding works now? And he calls them fools again. But he intensifies it here. He says, basically, are you guys this foolish? Really? You guys are this foolish, knowing full well that your salvation was begun by faith alone, by the Spirit of God. You're now seeking to be perfected in the flesh? You're fools. You trade the undeniable truth of Christ and your salvation by faith, having been saved by the Spirit, by a sovereign work of God. And now you think, now your salvation requires works? He's comparing their initial salvation to their ongoing salvation. Their justification, whereby they were made righteous before God with their sanctification, where they become righteous in the here and now. The beginning of their salvation, the spirit wrought faith that God grants to us. And then our Christian walk, where we become truly more holy. That's the being perfected he's talking about here. And remember what I said last week, and probably 98% of the weeks I've preached. Those who are truly saved by grace through faith will manifest work of righteousness in their lives. Who God justifies, he will sanctify. Who he saves from the punishment of sin, he will save from the power of sin. And what we also saw last week, remember, is that both of those works, both our justification and our sanctification, our salvation and our growing in holiness, this is God's work. By faith, we are justified. And by faith, we work. We live now life, as Paul said, in the flesh. We live it by the faith in the Son of, in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Let me say that again because I'm tongue-tied. The life we now live in the flesh is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so Paul was saying, after telling them that, how foolish it is to believe that they were justified by that faith, but now they'll be sanctified by their own efforts. To know they were saved by the Spirit, but then they'll be perfected in the flesh. And we see a distinction being drawn by Paul here, a distinction he draws over and over again in his writings, the difference between the Spirit and the flesh. And in Paul's writings, when he talks about being in the Spirit, the Spirit refers to anything that is done according to our new nature, what the new man, the person who has been born again by faith does. And the flesh is anything that we do according to our fallen nature, what the old man does. That man that Paul told us we saw last week died with Christ. We are called to kill day by day in practice. Basically, it's the difference between what God does through us and what we do in our own power or according to our own rules. Paul's saying, man, that's foolish. That is foolish to be born again by the Spirit of God and then work in the flesh. I mean, imagine, just imagine dying, going into the hospital, Doctor comes and revives you, and you wake up, and the doctor says, we got to figure this out. You say, no, doc, I'll take it from here. Thanks, though. <laughs> How much more foolish is it once we are saved by grace through faith to at any point in our walk tell God, I got this. I'll take it from here. That's what the Galatians were doing. And let's be honest, we do that sometimes too, don't we? But Paul wants to know if they or we are really that foolish. And I think looking at my own life, i got to say, yeah, I'm that foolish sometimes. But then Paul asked the question a different way. Verse 3, he says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? 
He's talking about suffering as Christians, suffering for their faith. Just like Paul told them, hey, if works of the law could save you, then Christ died for no reason. He's saying, hey, if circumcision could save you, then all that suffering that you have endured as a Christian, it was for no reason. And we, if we, after professing Christ, decide to work for our salvation, well, then why do we bother suffering at all? Why do we suffer the consequences of being a Christian? There are always consequences. There are always consequences to being a Christian. I mean, we're not imprisoned and beaten and killed for our faith in this country today, but our brothers and sisters around the world are. But there are consequences even for us. I'm going to ask you this. Who here? Raise your hand if you didn't have a single relationship altered when you became a Christian. With family, with friends. Raise your hand if you didn't have to turn your back on certain parts of your lifestyle when you were born again. Who here didn't have a shift in priorities, maybe major shifts, when your eyes were open to the truth of God? Who here didn't abandon some activities, things we used to really enjoy doing when we were born again because suddenly they just seemed kind of worthless to us? Well, if all you had to do to please God was check a few boxes on a list, why'd you bother with any of that? That's what Paul's asking the Galatians. If work saved at any point, if they were a valid way to please God at any point, then suffering, facing the consequences of associating yourself with Christ is all in vain. That's why he says, if indeed it was in vain. He's basically saying, did you suffer as a Christian for no reason now that you think it's for no reason? Because clearly, Galatians, by the works you're trying to do, you're saying all of that was for no reason. And again, he's referring back to that change from how they started by the Spirit to how they think they will finish by the flesh. He's saying, hey, by adding requirements, even for your ongoing salvation, you're saying the cross was for nothing and my suffering for my faith has been for nothing. The suffering for their faith, declaring that they were associated with Christ is in vain because they are now relying on themselves. They're relying on works to continue to be saved. And that's why Paul asks the next question in verse 5. Paul's not letting up here. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How does he who supplies, he who provides the Holy Spirit to you, how does he who works miracles, literally works powers among you, how does he do it, Paul asks? He says, I'm okay. How did you receive the Spirit? How was that first thing done? Was that by faith or by works? And obviously we saw Paul knows, they know, it was by faith. He's already established this. And he says, okay, so that was by faith. It was the work of God. How about the rest now? How about the rest of your life in which you will necessarily grow in righteousness? You will necessarily grow in holiness if you have been saved. How is that going to be realized in your life, Galatians? By works or by faith? By the law or by faith? By circumcision or by faith? Insert whatever you want here. By some box you're going to check, or by faith? That's what Paul says. How did you receive the Spirit? Oh, it was provided to you. Now, how are miracles, powers, how are works going to be done? The same way. It will be provided to you. It will be Christ who does the work through you. And notice Paul gives these options. Either works of the law or hearing with faith. He's trying to make a distinction here. 
You have the active option of working or the passive option, the, re the receptive option of hearing with faith. Again, he's drawing out how the law calls for us to work. Faith calls for us to receive. Let me say that again. The law calls for us to work. Faith calls for us to receive, to receive from God. He's talking about working in our own power and working in God's power, which he will work in and through us. And again, the answer to these questions for Paul is obvious. Both our initial salvation, our ongoing salvation, our final salvation, every bit of our salvation is by faith. And then he goes on to say, because this is the way it has always been. And listen, this is a pivotal point in Paul's argument here. Let me get ready. Understanding these next few passages, this portion of Scripture was pivotal in my own life for understanding the whole of the Bible. This letter was pivotal in the life of Martin Luther to understanding justification by faith alone and started the Protestant Reformation. Because listen, in order to prove that God's salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Paul gives the Galatians an example, an example they would have known. He gives the example of Abraham. Again, Galatians 3, 5 to 6, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? He says, is your salvation by works like, hey, Galatians, you clearly seem to think it is, or is it by faith like Abraham's was? And don't miss the importance of what Paul's saying here. We saw two weeks ago the heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone. That is the heart of of the Christian faith. And we saw last week, that is the only way to salvation because under no circumstances can our own works justify us before God. Works of the law, we saw, remember, could only kill. And here, Paul's saying, and Galatians, that's the way it's always been. He's making quite a statement. He's pointing the Galatians to Abraham, the father of our faith. He's saying, you know what? Abraham was justified. It was by faith alone. This is completely contrary to what the Jews of Paul's day would have believed. It's completely contrary to what Jews of our day believe. It's completely contrary to what the Judaizers in Galatia would have believed. But if what Paul is saying here is true, then it proves that works of the law, and in particular circumcision, cannot and never could make someone righteous. Furthermore, if what Paul is saying is true, then it proves that only faith can and ever could make someone righteous. So I want to I draw that out. To see that, we're going to have to go back a little bit. Back from the, from the letter to the Galatians all the way back to the beginning, where God created everything that was made. And then his crowning achievement, Adam, more so Eve in my opinion, and he makes a covenant with them. And God says this in Genesis tw uh, 1, verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then he makes Adam. And we read in Genesis 2, 15, the Lord took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then he makes Adam's perfect counterpart in Eve. And we read this in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. 
and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God makes a covenant with them. Obey me, my one restriction, and I will give you everything. But here's the question. Who is this covenant with? It's not just Adam and Eve. It's with them and the whole human race. This is for all of us. It's for Adam and Eve and their fruit that multiplies to fill the earth, and that is the entire human race. Adam and Eve and their offspring comprise every human being that has ever been or ever will be. And this is the covenant that God makes with all of us, with all of creation. I will bless you. I will be your God. I will dwell among you if you'll obey me. And this, of course, is the covenant we broke at the fall. And sin abounds. Immediately we see the next generation, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And we see that sin reigns on the earth. And it just gets worse and worse and worse until God destroys the whole world with a flood. And only Noah and his family are saved. And when the flood subsides, they come out, beautiful rainbow, and God makes a covenant with them. Genesis 9, we read, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you should be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps in the ground, and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. And then in verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, but never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. <gasps> Notice, there are some similarities here between the covenant with Adam and the covenant here. Why? Well, because again, who is this covenant with? It's not just Noah. not just those who came out of the ark. It is for them and every animal and every person that ever would be and every animal that ever... This is with the whole world. Noah and his family now compromise, comprise every human being that ever was since the flood and ever will be. And what do we see after this covenant's made? Well, sin abounds. And it gets worse and worse and worse until it culminates in the Tower of Babel and God punishing the one family of the world, spreading them all over the world, confusing their languages. And immediately following that incident, Moses recounts in the book of Genesis the physical line of Shem, the son of Noah, down to a man named Abram. This is where God's salvation of his people really begins to unfold. Look what happens. Of like the first two covenants that God had made with the whole of mankind. Covenants that ultimately served only to show us that sin reigns over us. Only those covenants that God made with everyone. This covenant is with a particular man that God chooses out of the world. And God makes a promise to this man, Abram. In Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him. God calls Abram to leave his house, his country, all his friends, most of his family, his entire life. He goes to just his father, his cousin, and his wife. There were definitely consequences for Abram when God called him, let me tell you. But Abram went. So God makes a covenant with Abram. Genesis 15, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And if you know the story, you know this covenant was ratified with the sacrifice. But God puts Abram to sleep, and God himself takes on the oath of the covenant. He promises to uphold the covenant himself. He did the work. Promised he still would do the work. And look what we're told about Abram in the next verse. Why does he make the covenant with Abram? Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. This is what Paul is quoting. See, the book of Genesis tells all these things that Abram did. That wasn't it. That wasn't why God chose him. That wasn't why God was going to bless his offspring. No. It's because Abram was justified by faith alone. Not his works. His faith. God did the work. Abram believed. Now, who's this covenant made with? It's not just Abram. Later renamed Abraham. No, just like with Adam and Eve, just like with Noah and his family, this covenant is with Abraham and, as God says, his offspring after him. Only now, it's not the whole world, because Abraham is one particular person God chose. No, God's covenant is with one particular people, the offspring of Abraham. And here's the trillion-dollar question, who are the offspring of Abraham? It's not physical Israel, and we'll see that as we go through the book of Galatians. So who is it? Paul tells us in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Notice what Paul's saying here. This shatters any claim that righteousness can come by the law. It destroys any notion that physical lineage can mean that you are one of God's people. It shows that only those and all of those who were justified by faith alone are the true offspring of Abraham who was justified by faith alone. That's why John the Baptist could say to the unbelieving Jews who had it wrong in Luke 3, he says to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's telling them, no, oh no, you're not. You brood of vipers, you unbelievers, you are not sons of Abraham. But the point is, the idea that physical descent has anything to do with being a child of Abraham is just plain wrong. And that's what Paul is saying when he says here, again beginning in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So what Jesus explained to the Jews after the light of the world discourse in John chapter 8, how did they argue with Jesus? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. The man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You were of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? 
If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now notice a few things. Notice how the, all the unbelievers understand all of this. All the promises of God in the Old Testament, they understand them physically. And Jesus says, no. No, instead, Jesus equates being children of God with being children of Abraham. And then he says, they were not sons of Abraham. He said, if you were the sons of Abraham, you would do the works that he did. They don't do the same works as Abraham. This isn't contrary to what Paul says, because those works were done in faith, as we'll see in a minute. Look, we spoke last week, based on what Paul had said at the end of chapter 2, that the works that we do were even by faith. And notice Jesus brings us back to faith, about hearing the word of God, about receiving the word of God. So like Paul just said in verse 2, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Both Paul and Christ, both Paul and Christ say that it is the faith, receiving what God has, that makes us children of Abraham. But here's the thing. The only other question to be answered is this. If Abraham was justified by faith, where did he place that faith? 2,000 years before Christ came, where did Abraham place his faith? In Christ. Jesus concludes that same section of scripture this way, John 8, 56. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and it was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say it to you, before Abraham was, I am. How did Abraham see Jesus' day? By faith in the promises of God. Promises that Abraham himself understood to be spiritual and not physical. That is why the Bible tells us Abraham's works were of faith. Hebrews 11 by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, designer and builder is God. Abraham understood the offspring and the promise and the inheritance and the land and the salvation, all of it. Abraham understood it as spiritual. Which is why Paul says in Galatians 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Remember what he just said to the Galatians. In verse 1 he says, Before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed is crucified. See, unlike Abraham, the man of faith, who looked forward to the promised salvation. The Galatians and we on this side of the cross, remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, we have the benefit of the undeniable truth that has already happened. We have God's public declaration of salvation in Jesus Christ. And our salvation is the same as it was before, that same for us as it was for Abraham. Faith alone in Christ alone. And lest there be any misunderstanding of what Paul's saying, just so the Galatian Christians could have no doubt, he says this in verse 8. And the scripture that he just referred to, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations, in you all the nations, in you shall all the nations be blessed. I need a bigger font. See, this is the initial promise God made to Abraham. We looked at it a few minutes ago. Paul's saying not only was the covenant made with Abraham spiritual, the very promise that started this all was a spiritual promise. He's saying that is how the nations will be blessed. It's the only way the nations could be blessed. If the promise was for Abraham and his physical seed, only one nation could receive the blessing. But it's spiritual. So that regardless of physical descent, regardless of where you're from, regardless, by faith, anyone of any nation, of any background, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you haven't done, you can take part 
in God's ultimate blessing. And Paul says the scriptures, the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, foresaw this. He says this is the purpose of the promise. This is the intention all along. The intention of the Holy Spirit here was to point forward to God's true spiritual people, to all those justified by faith alone, just like Abraham. To this promise God made to Abraham was, a, was him preaching the gospel. And the promise is for believing Jews and believing Gentiles, and it has always been. Paul was saying, unequivocally, the promise was only ever for those who would be justified by faith. Which is why he concludes in verse 9, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's not forget the context here. Because Paul's still making the same argument he's been making all along. Just in a much more wonderful way, if you ask me. Paul was saying that the physical offspring of Abraham those who were circumcised physically to denote their physical inclusion in the physical nation of Israel, he says, that has nothing to do with the promise. They're not included in the promise by physical descent. Circumcision cannot save you, in other words. So that means the Galatians' circumcision, as we saw last week, it didn't mean anything for their standing before God. It added not a bit to their righteousness. It couldn't further their salvation an inch. And so Paul says to the Galatians, now we know all this, and you should have known all this, and you knew all of this. So are you really this foolish? You really believe now that trying to work is going to gain you anything? You think adding, adding circumcision to your faith will benefit you and has never made a difference for anyone? When the promise was spiritual, when the covenant was spiritual, it was for his true spiritual offspring? When you yourselves, Galatians, when you receive salvation by the Spirit through the hearing of the gospel. Galatians, where's your faith? Where's your faith? That's my question for everybody here. Really, where is your faith? Is it in Jesus Christ? Is it in Jesus Christ and him alone? Listen, if it's not, then repeat what I just said. By faith, anyone from any nation, from any background, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've not done, anyone by faith can take part in God's ultimate blessing. By simply believing, you receive the blessing. You receive the salvation. You are free from sin and death. And if you're here and that's you, you know what? I don't want to talk all Christianese to you. That sounds abstract, right? This whole sin and death thing. What does that even mean? But how about this? By faith. By believing that Christ is who he says he is. By believing that Christ did what he publicly and indisputably did. You can know the truth. You can have all of those competing voices from the TV, from your news feed, from Facebook. The ones in your heart. By faith in Christ you can have those silence and you can know the truth. By believing in Christ, you can have a place where you can take all that worry and all that anxiety and all that fear and all that doubt. You have a place where you can go and be truly free from that. By faith, by faith alone, you can be healed from those emotional hurts that you have had. You know, the ones that you've decided, I'm just going to accept, I'm going to have these for the rest of my life. 
No, there's a place for those. By faith, you can let go of your anger. You can be released from that burden of being unable to forgive. In other words, by believing in Christ, you really can have a new life. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, why are we so foolish sometimes? Why do we look at what was begun by the Spirit and then try to continue that in the flesh? After being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, why do we sometimes live, you know, a little grace and a little our way? A little faith and a little work? A little Christ, maybe a lot of Christ, but still a little me. If you're like me and you've ever said to yourself, man, I really need to pray, pray more. I know it's hard, but i got to pray more. Man, I, I, I really, really, really need to get in my Bible more. I, I, I know I should get involved in church. I really want to. And you, you say these things and really mean them. And then you find yourself a week later saying the same thing. Or a month later saying the same thing. Or a year later and saying the same thing. I've been there. But listen... I want to tell you, you don't have a problem getting motivated. You don't have a problem in your schedule. It's not that you just don't have the time. It's not that time gets away from you. You clearly don't have a desire problem, right? You want to do these things. You don't have an energy problem, although it may feel like that sometimes. I get it. You have a faith problem. What God has begun in you by his spirit, you have been trying to continue in the flesh. So Paul says, stop it. Stop complicating it. Return to the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Because listen to me, understand, hear me. God wants to give you far more than you can ever want. He wants to do far more through you than you can ever imagine. He wants to do far more in you than you can ever ask. And Paul tells us how we get that. Faith alone. Remember, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. So that means we need more of him. And I encourage you to seek him. And I know I say this every week. We know where Christ can be found. We know that we can go in his word and we can find him. And hopefully we'll understand that he is from Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end. Seek Christ in his word. We know about prayer. We can go to prayer and we can find Christ. We can find Christ in each other. Here's the problem. We try to do all these things way too often. If you believe, if you believe, what Paul is saying here, if you believe that all that we do needs to be by faith alone in Christ alone, then we will, by faith, by faith, be able to seek him. Not because we think we should. It's not a checklist. Don't bother if it's a checklist. Because you believe that Christ wants to do a wonderful work in you because you believe that he who begun the work in you will bring it to completion. By faith, let's seek Christ. Let's seek Christ together here every Sunday. We're, here, we're open every Sunday, guys. You knew that, right? We're open every Sunday. We actually start at 10. Um, listen, it's not complicated. God made it simple because he knows how foolish we can be and how overcomplicated we can make things. 
My wife's thinking like, I know you ain't talking. I know how easy it is to overcomplicate things. It is easy. It is Jesus. It is faith alone in Christ alone. As we saw two weeks ago when Pastor Dave preached, Martin Luther said, this has to be beaten to our heads, right? Brothers and sisters, let's seek him alone by faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's harsh language, Lord, to anybody who would try to add even a little bit of works in with our faith, Lord, to continue our salvation. God, it is all of you. All of it is of you. And Lord, when we leave here and those voices have access to us, there's a lot of them. Father, may we remember the truth, the undeniable truth of what your son has done, the undeniable truth of what it means for us, the undeniable truth, God, that if we have faith of a mustard seed, as Jesus said, we'd be able to move mountains, Lord. God, my prayer, my prayer, God, is that by faith, Lord, you would take all these things from us that are competing for you, against you in our hearts, Lord. Take these things from us, Lord. We don't want to suffer in vain, but Lord, we are ready to give up whatever it is we need to give up, Lord, to know you more, to serve you, God, to shine your light into the world, Lord, to love you more. God, this is our prayer. So we ask in faith to get hold of our hearts this morning in a very real way. In a very real way. That we would know you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.